Hello, friends. This is Derek Kistner, founder and executive director of the Greater Peoria House of Prayer. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Whether you're hearing from me, my wife Mandy, or a trusted leader, it's my hope that it would serve you well in your walk with Jesus. Maybe you're listening at home here in central Illinois, maybe in your vehicle, or even somewhere on the other side of the world. However you're tuning in or wherever you are, it's my prayer that what you hear helps you to love God, His Word, His Spirit, His Church, and the people you interact with each and every day. Thanks again for listening, and may the grace of God fill your heart as you listen to the following message. In January of this year, my wife Tina and I transitioned out of being the senior pastors of the Vineyard Church Peoria, as Derek indicated, where we'd served since planting the church 11 years ago. And... um, In in all transparency, uh, neither Tina nor I ever aspired to plant churches and pastor them or be in ministry. (laughs) Um, I wanted to assume a third-generation role in a a local family landscape construction and nursery and garden center business, Hair Nursery on on Route 91, where I now work, by the way, (laughs) 40-some-odd years later. But life lesson one, things often don't turn out quite like we imagine, do they? They unfold differently. And yet we can, like we sang with confidence tonight, know that God is working even when we can't see it. And things aren't unfolding the way that we imagine. Um, So I did attend the University of Illinois and um, was uh, intending to get a degree in landscape architecture, which I did. Graduated and moved back to Peoria to assume this generational role in the landscaping business in 1978. But as it were, God had different plans. Now, as a creature of habit, I've done daily Bible reading for as long as I can remember being a Christian. I just thought that's what you did. That's what the people who taught me said you did, and so I did it. Um, And by October, you're reading the book of Hebrews. And I remember distinctly in the fall of 1979, we're in Hebrews chapter 11, get to verse 8, and I read... Uh, that when God called Abraham to go to the place that he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit used that verse to speak to my heart in a way that the original author to Hebrews had never intended. That God does that with the Bible. That's one of the beauties of the Holy Spirit. He can take a, a verse that was intended for a particular group of people at a particular time and breathe on it by the Holy Spirit and speak to our heart and That was one of many Antioch moments that Tina and I had. And I was convinced at that point that we were to return to Champaign and be a part of this little Bible study that my sister and her husband and Tina and I had started with two other couples uh, the last year uh, that we were in school. Didn't make any natural sense whatsoever. But after praying about that for several weeks, we met with my parents uh, at the end of October in 79 to tell them that we were leaving the family business and the family church and the family town and the home that we had just built to move to Champaign to be a part of this little group of eight people. And we didn't know where we were going to live or what we were going to do for a living or what the future could possibly hold, but we were sure that God was sending us. And you can imagine how that conversation went. But that's exactly what we did. We, we packed up everything we owned in a pickup truck and moved to Champaign in the January of 1980. And um, there we were. Didn't know what the future held. 
we began to ask the local pastors, 10 or 12 of them whom we had known over the previous couple of years, what they thought about us starting an evangelistic association and teaching center, because that's what everybody had back in the middle to late 70s. And to a person, they all said we would fail. And so we took their advice and started it anyway. And, <laughs> and we purchased a vacant church building on the campus at the University of Illinois. It was an old Church of Christ, and it didn't have a parking lot. And so all the older folks needed access, and so they built on the edge of town, and this building had sat vacant. So we made a ridiculous offer uh, of money which we did not have and bought this building, and God somehow miraculously provided. It was so crazy that we told them, because we didn't believe in going into debt. We said, we'll pay you $5,000 cash every month. Every three months, we'll pay you $15,000 cash. And if we ever miss a payment, you can have all the money and and the building back. (laughs) Because we felt God told us. And, I mean, that was absolute insanity. We were a group of eight people. (laughs) And and I didn't have a job. Uh, God somehow did it. To this day, we don't really know how. Every month, we met our obligation. We bought that got that building paid for, $150,000, and um, we rehabbed that building, and that little group began to grow accidentally kind of into a church. We had no idea what we were doing, but we were meeting two nights a week and then three nights a week for Bible study and praise and worship, and we just partnered with what God was doing. And it, it's there's no secret, and it's not that we're that smart. It's just that we were willing to do what God instructed us to do, and that little small group of fledgling people, newly filled with the Holy Spirit and desiring to serve and please God, we just partnered with him for the next 30 years, and it grew into what became a vibrant church, the Central Illinois Vineyard, the Vineyard of Central Illinois. And uh, it was a great 30-year run. Uh, I mean, it, it, it wasn't uh, like we didn't have a strategic plan. Uh, we didn't, uh, we just kind of did what we felt God asked us to do, and we surrounded ourselves with wise people and spirit-filled people, and that church grew rather large, and we bought an 18-acre campus and planted five churches and had six campuses, and at one point, there were 85 staff members uh, with an annual budget of $5 million, and I'm not saying that to like say, look at us. It, it surprised us more than anybody. <laughs> it just uh, was what God was doing. And my wife and I served there in almost every conceivable role you can have in three decades. Tina directed the nursery for that entire time, served as a leader of the financial team. I served as what we would now call an executive pastor, although back then they didn't have those titles, uh, was the worship team leader, and uh, was part of our preaching and teaching team. And then when we didn't have a youth pastor, I served there for a couple of years, led small groups. Just, just, we just did whatever needed to be done. But it was uh, a wonderful, wonderful season in our life and family. We frankly imagined that we would spend the rest of our lives there. We loved that church. We loved the town. We loved the people. We loved the influence that God was granting us. But starting in 2006, when my wife Tina was diagnosed with uterine cancer, from which she made a complete recovery without the need of chemotherapy or radiation, for which we're grateful, uh, 
we began to sense that our lives would, once again, not unfold as we were imagining. God was preparing us for what was to come. And over the next three years, in both natural and very supernatural ways, he redirected our lives and said that the best way for us to leverage our gifts and experience was to return to our hometown of Peoria and plant another vineyard. Some of you may remember there had been a vineyard in East Peoria from about 85 to 2005 maybe, Uh, but it never crossed the river because those were the days, as Pastor John was sharing, and many of us have experienced in previous times. The towns didn't mix uh, back in those days. And uh, so we announced our intention to our church family. Made no sense in the natural other than uh, Peoria needed a vineyard uh, because every town needs a vineyard. Every town needs lots more churches. You know, one of the first things people would always ask us, well, wh- why are you coming? The Peoria already has 649 churches. And that's one of the questions I ask God. Why, why another church? And then he reminded me that there are about 100,000 people that don't go to church in Peoria, Tazewell, Woodford, Stark, and Marshall County. And I'm like, oh, Peoria doesn't need just one new church. It needs dozens of new churches, and especially today. And so we announced our intention to our church family in the fall of 2010, and over the next few months, we gathered a team of 13 adults and 11 kids, most of whom we didn't know. They weren't our best friends. They weren't the people we were doing small group life with. They were just people that were willing to serve God and throw their life to the wind and take a chance and move to Peoria with us. So we moved in early 2011, and we planted a, a church launching our first service on December 4th, 2011, when everybody says, you never start a church during Advent. So we just went ahead and did it anyway, you know, because <laughs> we felt like that's what God was saying. And it seems like since that time, thousands of people, and I'm not like, ex- like exaggerating because I've actually kind of kept a list because, <laughs> because I, I keep lists of things. I like lists. I like numbers. I like metrics. A thousand people have come to our church and called it home and then moved on after a season of healing or empowering or redirecting and went on to serve God in many other places. The launch team, with the exception of one couple, had all taken new jobs by 2015, either ministry roles, some moved back to Champaign-Urbana where we came from, or moved on in their careers. And then in July 2020, four months into the COVID pandemic, I had to ask our assistant pastor, whom we had been preparing for four and a half years to transition the church to, to step down. Complicated series of reasons, very difficult time in our church family, And uh, we lost about half of our congregation, 65 people, and nearly a half of our income. Some people were upset because I didn't ask them to step down sooner. And and then when I did, the other half of the people were mad that I asked them to step down. So you just couldn't win, you know, and, and COVID didn't help that when everything was so divided over everything. But in the middle of that, God confirmed that he had already spoken to me and Tina that a 40-year ministry as pastors represented completion because 40 is a very significant number biblically. It almost always represents the completion of a series of tests or probation, and it's often followed with a, a period of blessing. 
And I'd believed that for many, many years, and God spoke to me that 40 years as a pastor was uh, the close. It, would, it was going to be a, a close, but it was the, like in the natural, the wrong time to retire, right? Church is falling apart. We're in the middle of COVID. <laughs> and then we thought, well, we're going to obey. So we began what we thought would be a short, but turned out to be a one-year process of discerning who the next pastors would be. And Matthew and Brittany had served as interns in our staff in Urbana, but were not on the radar screen. In fact, they'd seen the opportunity, and if it hadn't been for a former staff member who reminded Matthew that the position was still open, he might not have ever applied. And I was preparing to write a letter to our church in August of 2020 to say it looks like God's not providing someone, so it's time to sunset the church. I had the letter drafted. It was ready to go out. When Matthew and Brittany said, oh, we'll, we'll consider. And uh, as it turns out, God had uh, them prepared to return to central Illinois, where they're from, and to reconnect with a church family in, in Champaign-Urbana and the Vineyard Friends that they've made in uh, other cities in, in Illinois and Indiana and Iowa. And so they uh, moved here last November And Tina and I stepped down in January when I entered a season of mentoring and serving our our vineyard denomination and working in the garden center where I started. And like all of you and the church families that you represent, the ministries that you serve, in which you serve, we're trying to figure out what kingdom ministry in a post-COVID world is supposed to look like. Because it's going to be different moving forward. You know, we we can rush back and fill in the void by doing some of the same things that we've always done. Churches will always gather for worship and prayer and ministry and service. They'll educate and train and equip and reach out. But there'll be things that are different moving forward because the world is different. And so I thought that maybe I'd just share with you in, in these few minutes tonight the three things that I'd wish I'd known as a young leader. And I promise not to keep you all night, just like John promised. I'd like to begin by telling you a true story, and then I'll get into my points. In 1173, construction began on a white marble bell tower for a cathedral complex in Pisa, located in Tuscany, Italy. Five years later, by the time the builders had finished the the first three of a proposed eight stories, the structure had begun to tilt. To the south, Chief Engineer Giovanni de Simone uh, tried to compensate for the lean by adding extra masonry to the short side to stiffen it up, but the additional weight actually caused the structure to lean further. Well, the tower went on was officially completed in 1370, but its lean continued to increase over the next six centuries at a rate of about five one-hundredths of an inch per year, continuing to place it in increasing danger of collapse. By 1990, the tower was leaning so precariously, the top was 17 feet further south than the bottom, that it was actually closed to all visitors. The bells were removed as engineers started a very extensive $25 million renovation project to try to stabilize the tower. 
They did it by siphoning off 110 tons of earth from, from beneath the leaning uh, side and adding counterweights to the tower's north side, and they were able then to reduce the lean by about 16 inches. The straightening continued after the tower reopened in 2001, and by 2008, the sensors were showing that the subsiding tilting motion had actually stopped, and engineers now believe that the leaning tower of Pisa will remain stable for at least 200 years, barring an earthquake or other unpredictable natural disaster. What was the tower's problem, do you think? Bad design? Poor workmanship? An inferior grade of Italian marble? No, the problem was a faulty foundation. Unknown to the builders, the soil was actually a very dense but unstable mixture of clay, sand, and shells that compressed over time. Now, in architecture, healthy foundations are are very important. They, They transfer and distribute the weight of the superstructure... Uh, into the ground, and so therefore they determine the size and shape that a building can can have. And, And so it is in our journey of disciples as we follow Jesus, and especially those of us who are called to be leaders, whether that's leading in our church family because we're serving in children and kids' ministries or teens and youth or worship or, or small groups or outreach or men's and women's groups or, or divorce care or grief share or Stephen's ministry or whatever it is in whatever capacities we serve as leaders in our local churches and then in our uh, parachurch ministries, not unlike House of Prayer or others or even a not-for-profit that you might uh, be engaged with. If we're called to be a leader, we can only go as high and as wide as our foundation allows. The health and vitality of our walk with Jesus and ultimately our ministry will be determined by the health of our foundation. That's what I want to talk about. The Apostle John, as you probably know, wrote... One of the four Gospels, the three letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. These were the last five books of the New Testament to be written. At least that's what scholars tell us. And this means that Christianity would have been in the world already for 60 to 70 years. The point is John was an old man. He had outlived all of those who had been his friends and companions and co-workers in the ministry. John had the benefit of long reflection on what was the most important thing to say. And in 1 John 2.6, he encouraged us. We could say he encouraged emerging leaders with these words. 1 John 2.6, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. This is a simple, compelling, 
and profound vision for a healthy foundation for life and ministry. So how did Jesus live his life if we're, as leaders, called to live our lives as he lived? Well, I'm suggesting that if we take the 30,000-foot overview of the life and ministry of Jesus as provided in the Gospels, we'll discover that he lived at the intersection of three foundational clusters of activity. That is to say, almost everything he did could be drilled down into one of these three foundational clusters of activity. And so, if we want to live our lives as Jesus lived his, then we too should be filling our lives with these three clusters of activity. They should become our healthy foundation as leaders. We'll never get farther than our foundation allows us to go. And so no matter where ministry may take you, now and into the future, we should never stray from these three clusters of activity. And in this way, our Christ-like character will always trump anointing. And we see the ministries today, left and right, falling left and right through sin and deception and whatever. They're just dropping like flies. And it's sad. Some of the most anointed people in churches we see. Why? Because character always trumps anointing. Christ-like character. Living our lives as Jesus did. Now, it included power ministry. We're going to get to that. But no matter where ministry may take us, and, and many of us here and online, we're not going to work full-time in a church or a parachurch ministry. The overwhelming majority of disciples will serve bivocationally, as it were, engaged in ministry but earning a living in some other venue. But wherever ministry may take us through the years, we should never stray from these three clusters of activity. Here they are. First, Jesus cultivated a genuine, intimate relationship with God, his Father. And we'll unpack these now in just a, a, each one over a few minutes. Secondly, Jesus lived an authentic community with the Twelve. And thirdly, Jesus compassionately and powerfully extended the kingdom of God. So the first cluster, we see a healthy foundation, is that Jesus cultivated a genuine, intimate relationship with God his Father. He had a close, personal relationship with God the Father. He drew strength and wisdom and, and courage and direction from God. And he did that in three particular ways. First, through the Scriptures. Jesus loved the Scriptures. They shaped his worldview and guided his life in ministry. We know his mother Mary was devout from his earliest childhood. It's, there's no doubt that she would have taught him the Old Testament stories at age 12 on one of his family's treks to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. He astounded the great theologians at the temple with his knowledge of the law. There were schools connected with the synagogues at those days, and the young Jewish boys would have had the entire Torah, the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, memorized by the time they were bar mitzvahed at age 13. Jesus loved and lived the scriptures with fervor and intensity. He used them to resist the devil. He quoted large portions of them from memory. During his ministry, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament 78 times 15 books of the Old Testament 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Proverbs, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, and Malachi. And in his dying agonies of the cross, Psalm 22, he's quoting it as he dies. Jesus loved and lived the scriptures. They were a source of his joy, his strength, his perspective, his encouragement. God's word has something to say to us about every compartment of our busy, complicated, everyday, ordinary lives, doesn't it, friends? And God intends that we connect with him through the scriptures, not as an academic exercise or studying a rule book or a checklist that we can get our work our Christian work done for the day, but with an expectation that he'll actually speak to us into, in, our, in the text, that we can be touched and changed by God through the Bible, that the Word of God can be used by the Holy Spirit to inform and shape our very lives. We will never get farther from that as a foundation. At every opportunity I have, my church members that are here tonight can tell you probably how many times they got tired of hearing me say it. You know, <laughs> connect with Jesus through the scriptures. Every year I would, I would preach the same sermon. I didn't even have to dust off, you know, <laughs> write a new one. I just said the same thing. Uh, now, there's no one template that fits that activity, right? And so we give people grace to pray, come Holy Spirit and direct my way into connecting with God this year by reading and reflecting on the Bible. I found it helpful to have a daily Bible reading plan because then I don't have to figure out, where do I go today? So I, I've been using the one-year Bible for the last 25 years. I starts in Genesis and in Matthew, read a portion of the Old New Every Day, a Psalm and a Proverb. And then I have a track to run on. For you, it might not work that way. That's fine. Find uh, some sort of plan and then select a time and a day, a place to connect with God. And resist the temptation that Christians have, especially if they've been in the faith for a while, to not prioritize Scripture because, after all, I've already read it. You got, I got news for you tonight, friends. Uh, you don't stop eating just because you've eaten 3,000 meals. <laughs> no, every day we, we belly up to the bar, baby. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, keep Keep uh, eating at the table of God's Word. That's good. Thank you, Derek, for that water. Secondly, Jesus nurtured his relationship with the Father through prayer and time alone with God. He inaugurated his ministry with a 40-day time of prayer and fasting in the wilderness And then very often the Gospels would indicate that he'd rise early before dawn and seek a place of solitude where he could commune with the Father. I think many times he was getting a download of the day's activities and he could see in advance what the Holy Spirit was already planning to do that day. And then several times in the Gospels we catch a glimpse of Jesus spending the whole night in prayer. I doubt if it was just the two times we read. But time with God in prayer and silence and solitude was clearly a priority for Jesus. Now, I understand we live busy, complicated lives. I'm right there with you. We had four kids, went through all the phases of life. I mean, I love the emptiness, but, you know, it wasn't always empty. And I understand, you know, busy. 
Uh, and prayer and silence and solitude can dredge up all kinds of guilt and confusion and frustration, and we see a lack of appreciable benefit. We have questions and excuses, and frankly, the longer you're in the faith, the more opportunity you have to experience unanswered prayer. So it gets harder, not easier. But Jesus' example and the promises about prayer are so powerful that they cannot be denied. It's clear and plain. His invitation is sincere. And so we just kept coming back to his invitation. Now, there's no one pattern for prayer. Uh, we don't have to have certain words. It's, uh, sometimes it's really helpful to pray with a liturgy and crafted prayers that have existed for generations that exist before us. Every time you read a psalm, it's a prayer or a song, 3,000 years old, or the, the letters of, of Paul or Peter or John. Uh, maybe you could write your prayers out from a journal, or maybe you read a prayer in a devotional, or pray from the Book of Common Prayer, or a collection of liturgies, as, as I've grown to appreciate, because in the vineyard it was freewheeling. We were low church, and I, I've really missed out on the value of the contribution of high church, and so I'm now learning that 40 years later. But uh, sometimes the, the, the best prayers are the short ones. Help! Come Holy Spirit! You know, uh, please, thanks. I mean, those those short ones are real powerful. Uh, Jesus had great effect with short prayers. Come out, stand up, sit down, be healed. Stop, (laughs) go. (laughs) Those were good prayers. So you you can follow Jesus that way. So prayer and time alone with God. We'll never go farther or wider in our life's ministry than our foundation of prayer and time alone with God goes. And then thirdly, Jesus nurtured his relationship with the Father through public worship in the synagogue and the temple. You see, Jesus, even though he was a reformer, he worshiped regularly with his community in the houses of worship of his day. He didn't walk away from them, as so many are are prone to do today. He stayed in them. He was a, he was a change maker in, in the house of worship. He participated in the regular discipline of weekly worship. It was woven into the fabric of his life. And so I'm encouraging us as leaders to model a healthy participation and engagement in your local church family. Be a good churchman. Be a good churchwoman. Be supportive of your pastor or your pastoral leadership team and their decisions on church policy and vision and direction. It's not to say you simply say yes all the time, but it's be supportive. Don't be critical. There's a, an appropriate sphere of disclosure if, you're, if you disagree. Follow it. Don't blab. And understand that uh, you're, you're never really free just to criticize or gripe or complain. Defend the staff at first resort. Take a shot for them. Be an early adapter, you know, and, and bring along others in the things that your church family is trying to do. Now, these three activities, developing and cultivating an intimate relationship with the living God as our Father, time alone with Him uh, in prayer and silence and solitude, and participating regularly in the public discipline of worship, these are often referred to as the historic disciplines of the faith, the things that disciples do. And there are perhaps no three other activities that have the capacity to connect us to God and enable us to hear His voice and receive His instruction as reading, reflecting, and meditating on the Scriptures, 
prayer and public worship do. That's just the way it works in the church. For the last 2,000 years, these three disciplines have been the primary vehicles that the Holy Spirit has used to build and sustain relationships of vitality in the heart of disciples. That's the way it's worked. Now, certainly there are other disciplines. Fasting, serving, giving, simplicity, confession. And we see glimpses of these in Jesus' life in the Gospels. And these are just activities of heart and mind that create opportunity for the Holy Spirit to act. I think of them and describe them for for our people as a landing strip for the Holy Spirit. They give the Holy Spirit a place to land in our life. Of themselves, they're just activity. But when engaged in the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciplines have the ability to allow the Holy Spirit to come and interact with us. A landing strip for the Holy Spirit. Now, please understand there are many other ways for people to genuinely connect, connect with God. And you, you experience them too, co- connecting and communing with God in nature, through sacred literature, through music, listening, or playing, through art and painting and sculpture and craftsmanship and working with fabrics and textiles, through handiwork of craftsmanship and cabinet making and needlework and woodworking and calligraphy. And these are all beautiful ways, filmmaking. I mean, they're all beautiful ways that we can use our gifts and experience to connect with the living God. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's the three historic disciplines to the exclusion of everything else. These are the big three that we see in Jesus' life at the 30,000-foot level. And so that's why my encouragement to disciples, the first cluster of activity is cultivating a genuine, intimate relationship with the living God in these three ways. The second cluster of activities that we see in Jesus' life that provides a healthy foundation is that he lived in authentic community with the 12 disciples. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus spent a whole night in prayer, and then he selected 12 men, and each of them was radically different in personality and temperament and gifts and abilities and passions as the next one. They were a strange small group. You would have not felt very comfortable there. (laughs) And then after selecting the 12, they did everything together for the next three and a half years. They would eat, sleep, travel, minister, laugh, make mistakes, be corrected, get chewed out, be offended, work out their difficulties, watch, learn, ask questions. Because it was God's purpose that they were going to continue the work of the kingdom when Jesus was gone. And God's intention hasn't changed at all. It's for us, his disciples, to live in authentic community. We were designed to connect in deep relationships, to love and be loved, to know and be known, to be heard and understood, to be prayed for, to pray for others, to encourage and share life with others in community, authentic community. The Bible calls that fellowship. It's an old-fashioned word. comes from the Greek koinonia. It's not an island in Hawaii. It's the vital life of God shared among brothers and sisters. Frankly, I think 
what we've seen over the last two years, especially, is that we have a lot to learn about doing life together. When it wasn't there, we, we missed it, but then we couldn't do it, and then we're back, and it's all different now, and getting along despite our differences and learning to love and serve one another. And, of course, our shared life together looks much differently than Jesus and the Twelve. Culture and history dictate that. But the point is made. There are no solo flights in the kingdom. I, I get a little tired of people who are telling me today that, you know, I still love Jesus, can't handle the church. Hello. Like, if you love Jesus, you love what Jesus loves, which is his brothers and sisters. It's called the church. I'm not indicating there might be seasons where God has you out of one into another, whatever, but if you love Jesus, you love the church. That's the way Jesus' life and ministry show. It's interesting, too, if you look carefully at the New Testament, the context of what we might call today spiritual growth passages, when people want to grow in God or grow in their ministry or their gifts, The context is almost always personal relationships. And that's because personal relationships, living community, has a way of growing us up like nothing else does. And I tell young leaders all the time, guys, gals, we can read the Bible, we can pray, we can fast, we can worship, we can give, we can serve in the church and community, but we may never mature and grow up because we aren't entering genuine relationships. Because God's going to use people to grow us up in a way that all those other things can't. People say, what do, you, what do you mean, Ben? Well, because it's in relationships that there are irritating habits to overlook, opinions to tolerate, quirks to ignore, offenses to let go of, hurts to forgive, debts to release, prejudices to repent of. This is the work of the kingdom. Now, in in our particular movement, the Vineyard Movement, it's only 40 years old. I mean, we don't know nothing because we're so young, right? (laughs) But uh, we have found a few things, and what we've discovered, and what I encourage leaders all the time, is that either leading or participating in a small group, you might know them in your church family as community groups or men's groups or women's groups or kinship groups or growth groups or The name isn't the the big deal. It's what happens in them. That's the big deal. That leading and participating in small groups is the most natural and effective way to cultivate the kind of authentic relationships that Jesus modeled. Because it's in that context that we live out what the apostles call the one another's. Love one another. In honor, prefer one another. Don't judge one another. Forgive one another. Comfort one another. Serve one another. Accept one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forbear one another in love. Encourage one another. Don't provoke one another or envy one another. Teach and admonish one another with song. Exhort one another and consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. You have to be up close to do that stuff. And it's in the context of committed relationships that it can happen. And most often we find these in church ministry teams or, or small groups you know, where we have a regular ongoing contact with men and women that we get to know and love and trust over time. Now, I also want to encourage people as leaders, 
cultivate genuine friendships with people outside the church, right? Don't live in, in an ivory tower, so to speak. It might be a hobby or interest club, friends at the gym or at your sports team that you play on, friends of your parent. Uh, 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 if you, you could cultivate friendships with the parents of the kids that your, uh, your kids hang out with, maybe a support group, a not-for-profit where you volunteer, maybe if you're uh, on the PTSA where your kids go to school, a neighborhood association, um, maybe they could be neighbors or coworkers or classmates or fraternity or sorority, brothers or sisters from college or roommates or whomever. Cultivate those relationships in genuine uh, ways. And, and when you do, my encouragement is, is to learn to listen and then ask sensitively timed questions. And when the opportunity presents itself because you've built a bridge of trust and you're invited to cross, then you can share your story. And your story is going to be a natural, non-manipulative, non-hyped way of sharing about Jesus because Jesus is at the center of our story, right? And it will come across as a non-threatening way. We're created for real-life relationships. That's part of a healthy foundation. And so find a group of people that you can live as Jesus lived in that way. Third thing, and we'll wrap up with this. The third activity in a healthy foundation is that Jesus compassionately and powerfully extended God's kingdom. Everywhere he went, he proclaimed and demonstrated that the kingdom of God had arrived. He forgave sin. He drew men and women and children into relationship with God the Father. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He restored people's sanity. He fed the hungry. He reintegrated those who were marginalized back into the mainstream in society. He advocated for justice. He cared for the outcast. He encouraged the hopeless. He ruled over nature. And on three occasions, he even raised the dead. And Jesus then taught what living in God's kingdom, or said another way, under the rule of God, God's kingdom is where he rules, what it was supposed to be like contrasted to what they had learned in years of religion. And he instructed them how to live in peace and harmony. He reinterpreted their understanding of the intent and purpose of the Mosaic law. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And so he was reframing their understanding. That was part of what the ministry of the kingdom was all about. And his ministry, as we know, touched every aspect of human existence, didn't it? Spiritual, physical, social, relational, financial, and emotional. And this is the life into which Jesus calls us to follow him. No matter what we do to earn a living, no matter what kind of ministry we might have, in or out of the church, our life is to be about this cluster of activity, extending God's kingdom. This is the foundation for life. And as I've said... The overwhelming percentage of people will never serve God full-time uh, as a missionary or on a church staff, on a not-for-profit or parachurch ministry staff. They're not, that's not where they're going to earn their living. We follow Jesus as a full-time disciple in what Eugene Peterson calls in Romans 12, our everyday ordinary life, our sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. That's the general call. We can all do that regardless of where we're at, where we live, how old we are, what abilities and gifts we have. 
And so I encourage our church family, think all the time about the three spheres of relationship where God's placed you, where you have influence, vocational, where you work, presuming that most of us have, uh, have something that occupies the largest majority of our waking hours, whether we're paid or not. Vocation, where we work. Geographic, where we live. You live in a unique neighborhood. Some of us, a literal neighborhood. We live in the cove. And so my wife and I have made it our point to get to know all 26 other homeowners in the cove. They're our neighbors. Where you live could be an apartment complex, condo, could be out on the farm, it could be uh, in a subdivision, on a cul-de-sac. But we all live in a geographic neighborhood. And then relational. This is the third neighborhood, your relational neighborhood, the people with whom you do life. You just think of all the, the places that you frequent on a regular basis in a week's activity. Those are the people in your relational neighborhood. And these three fields are those in which Jesus is sending us as his disciples. Now, there, there might also emerge a special call. Pastor John pointed that out in Acts 13, that, that Barnabas and Paul were among the teachers and prophets doing the thing that they did, and then God had a special call for them. There might be a time or season in your life where God will give you a special call. That as you're engaged in extension of the kingdom, generally obeying the call of God, going into places where you work, where you live, and where you do life, obeying the gospel, living the kingdom, doing kingdom stuff, God might highlight a special invitation for you based on your gifts and abilities and your passions and your desires or his desire for you. For some, it becomes real clear. I loved how uh, Pastor John shared last night, and many of the times when God spoke, it became really, really clear. We've had one or two of those in our life. The one to move to Champaign based on Hebrews 11 and the uh, supernatural events that motivated us then to move back to Peoria. But for an overwhelming majority of Christians, they never get us a special call like Paul or Moses or Elijah or or, uh, John the Baptist. They don't ever receive a, a dramatic supernatural call. And so if you don't have one, relax. If God has one for you, he'll make it clear. He's not playing cat and mouse with you, like, oh, what's God's will for my life? I don't know, you know. Uh, uh, If you don't know it, then just relax and just keep pressing into it and pray into it. Revelation might come slowly or over time. And if you never receive a special summons, then you can relax and know that his will for your life was to obey the general call as a disciple doing the three things that I've shared with you tonight, that you never get far away from these three clusters of activity. And then I, if, if an op- opportunity opens up tomorrow night, we can talk a little bit more about the difference between the general and the special call and what that actually looks like over time. Extend God's kingdom. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. I'll reiterate those three clusters, and then we'll wrap it up with some prayer. As young leaders, as middle-aged and old leaders, 
as people aspiring to be leaders, as people who are serving as leaders right now, I just want to say you'll never go farther in life or ministry beyond a healthy foundation. You might be tempted to go beyond your foundation, and it might even work for a while, but eventually it's going to crash and burn. And these are the three clusters of activity. When we do what 1 John 2, 6, those who say they live in God should live their life as Jesus did. These are the three things that Jesus did. He cultivated a genuine, intimate relationship with God, his Father. He lived in authentic community with the 12 apostles, and he compassionately and powerfully extended God's kingdom everywhere he went. Finish by saying this. When the Tower of Pisa was leaning so far out of plumb because of the faulty foundation, they had to shut it down for an 11-year extensive renovation project. I've indicated that before. Unfortunately, Christians don't have the luxury of taking a decade-long break while we retool things in our foundation. Rather, we have to welcome God to bring growth and change as we pray, come, Holy Spirit, bring the change that you want to initiate into my life and help me embrace what you reveal and help me trust you for the grace for transformation. Believing, God, that you're going to bring into our lives the power and proof of 2 Corinthians 3.18. As the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like Jesus. So, Lord, I just pray that you, Holy Spirit, would help each of us build our lives on the foundation of these three clusters of activities. I wish I had known this as a young leader, could have spared so much struggle and meandering and falling away from the path. But these three core activities from which we will never get beyond, help us, God, to build and then grow personally and spiritually to look more and more like Jesus, to become more like Christ and fulfill the work that you have for each of us to do so that we could hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I pray for a release of the Holy Spirit in each one of us tonight. Lord, to reorient back to a life of engagement in these foundations, a life of vision for where you want to take us and what you want to uh, empower us to do. Speak, Holy Spirit, and bring your kingdom among us. I thank you for these women and these men here tonight and ask for your kingdom to come now. In your name, Lord. For more messages like this one, please visit our online teaching library at gphop.org teachings. If you found this free material helpful in your walk with God, 
please prayerfully consider a generous donation. To give, please visit gphop.org donate. That's gphop.org donate. Thank you, and may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ richly bless you today.